Hi, hello, how are you? My name is Elizabeth Dale and I am a Cornish writer and blogger with a bit of a passion for local history and I hope you're all really well today and firstly I kind of have to apologise a little bit because um, I'm slightly behind myself this month and I'm only just getting around to recording this episode now and we're coming towards the end of July so yeah I'm a bit behind but the old Covid it got me after two and a half years of being so careful Yes, I fell afoul and yes, I I had to have a whole week off and then I had a very croaky voice for ages afterwards and I just didn't feel like you wanted to hear that. (laughs) So here we are, I'm back. Apologies for the the long break, but I'm really hoping that you are going to forgive me when you uh, listen to this story today because believe me when I say this is a really good one, I mean you just wait. So let's get started. I think we're all aware that through history there has been a tremendous stigma attached to women having babies outside of marriage. But of course that doesn't mean that it didn't happen and I think it happened much more frequently than we actually realise. As someone who does quite a lot of research into family trees and things like that, um, I have come across numerous occasions where, you know, the, the, the numbers just don't add up and you realise that the woman, at the very least, must have been going down the aisle um, several months pregnant. And that's what happened if you were lucky. Um, you managed to get the man who had got you in the family way to actually do the right thing and marry you. But if you didn't manage to do that, for a woman, that was a complete disaster and as a consequence many women tried to obviously keep that pregnancy secret and when the time came tried to find ways of of getting rid of that baby without anybody finding out and often women would just abandon that child somewhere where they hoped it would be found and taken care of by someone or of course end up in a workhouse or in an orphanage. And in the 19th century, these abandoned children were often known as foundlings. And this is what this episode is about. I'm going to cover the story of a few Cornish foundlings, but one in particular, which is just simply remarkable. But first, there's a quick story from Penzance, which just goes to illustrate how these things can actually pan out quite well for everyone involved. And this particular story happened in Penzance in January 1871. A man was sitting at a bar in a pub called the Fountain Tavern, which still exists. It's there on St. Clair Street in Penzance, just sort of above where the train station is. Anyway, this man is sitting um, at the bar and he starts complaining to the landlord about a noise that he can hear coming from another room. And he says it sounds like a, a cat screeching. So the two of them go to investigate and they find not a cat, you guessed it, they find a newborn baby boy in a basket and this basket has a note attached. The note reads that the child is for James Corrin Jr, the son of the landlord. Now 
Cutting a long story short, eventually the mother, Bessie Graham Taylor, is found. And she obviously had this baby by the son of the landlord and decided the best way to get him involved in the child's life was to to leave it in the pub for everyone to find. And James Corrin, he does the right thing and the following month the pair are married. They go on to open a shop together, um, actually on Causeway Head, I believe, and they have several more children and we can only guess that they go on to lead a happy married life. And I guess that's what, you know, she had been hoping for. But often the babies are just abandoned and the parents are never located. And often after the baby is discovered and, and put into the hands of the authorities, really very minimal inquiries are, are, are made into finding the mother. It all depends, just depends on, on word of mouth. You know, does anybody know where this child might have come from? And usually, unfortunately, the baby will end up in a, a workhouse or a local orphanage. And while I was researching this, I discovered something interesting that I didn't know at all. And that is that the name given to the baby often related to the circumstances in which they were discovered. So, for example, Joseph Elderwood was named after the tree that he was found under in 1855 outside of Truro. And George Cornwall who was abandoned in 1844, is said to have been named after his king and country. Another boy, William Vine, you guessed it, he was found in a basket underneath a vine. And then there is Sarah Jane Mitchell. Well, she was abandoned on Mitchell Hill in Truro in May 1858. And her story it reads like something out of a Charles Dickens novel, but I can assure you it's 100% true. And this is a story that I'm going to be telling you today. So it all begins fairly simply. A policeman is walking on his rounds in Truro and comes across a bundle containing a baby that is thought to be a few months old and it's on the doorstep of a house in Mitchell Hill in Truro. Now, not being able to locate the mother anywhere nearby, the policeman decides to take the child, which is a baby girl, to Truro Workhouse, which at that time was at St Clement, which is a really pretty little hamlet um, just outside of Truro. Now, the girl was named Sarah Jane Mitchell and baptised at St Clement Church on the 16th of August 1858. And beside her baptismal record, the vicar has actually written a foundling. Sarah spent the next 14 years in the workhouse. Apparently, she was a bright child and she became a firm favourite with the other inmates. In the 1861 census, it shows her living with about 25 other inmates and she is the only one there without any family. 
Now, Sarah was given uh, a basic education in the workhouse and then at age 15, she was apprenticed to a farming family called Oates who were living at Roscola Mill. She stayed with them for a couple of years and then she went to work for the Williams family on another farm near Probrus. So, so far so ordinary, you might be saying. Well, around Sarah's 19th birthday, things started to get a bit bonkers. An advert appeared in the local newspapers in March 1877 and this advert read, Notice, should this meet the eye of a young lady, 19 years of age, whose parents are unknown to her, and if she will write enclosing a cart or description of herself to Aurora, care of Messrs. Heard and Sons Truro, it may be of great advantage to her in the discovery of her birth and parentage. End quote. Now, this advert caught the eye of Sarah's friend, a Mrs. Fleming, who told her about it and then took it upon herself to respond. Over the next few weeks, letters were exchanged back and forth between Probus and a solicitor's office in London because Aurora at this time wished to remain anonymous. Aurora was obviously a pseudonym, but it soon became clear that she was a woman looking for a child that she had believed had died and had recently learned was still alive and living in Cornwall. There were a few distinguishing features that this lady was looking for, a mark on the chin and dimples, amongst other things, and it was said that Sarah had them all. So, you might ask, how did we come to this extraordinary set of circumstances? How could this have happened? You know, how did this woman think, A, that her her child had died and it hadn't? And how had she learnt that her, her daughter was still alive? Well, enter to the story a woman called Elizabeth Trabb. Now, I have a feeling that the name Elizabeth Trabb is a false one because I've had a great deal of trouble tracing her despite knowing roughly where she was living and obviously the dates that this happened. But it's said that this Elizabeth Trabb had recently made a kind of deathbed confession which had led to this search for Sarah. So back in 1856, Elizabeth had been employed to care for a newborn baby. And it appears that a wealthy couple, a banker and his wife, had been visiting their friends, uh, Mr and Mrs Simmons, who were a clergyman and his wife. Now they were visiting to Penryn and the banker's wife was pregnant and she went into labour early. It was a very difficult birth and at first the baby girl was thought to have been stillborn and the mother was critically ill. So while the doctor was working to save her, the poor child was just literally put to one side because they they thought that she had died. And it was a maid who actually realised that she was still alive. But by this point, the mother was unconscious and seemed likely to die herself. So Mrs Simmons, the friend of this desperately ill woman, she took the newborn baby girl to Elizabeth Trapp, who lived about a mile from them and had several children of her own and asked her if she would act as nursemaid while the real mother hopefully recovered. 
She gave Elizabeth clothes for the baby and told her that she would pay her 15 shillings a week to care for the child. And she gave her three pounds up front for the first month, right there and then. Now, Elizabeth says that this Mrs. Simmons returned and gave her some more money about two weeks later, another three pounds. And she also gave her some linen for the baby and told her then that the mother had lived but she was still very weak and it would be a long time before she would be able to have the little girl back. So Elizabeth began receiving money regularly in the post for about the next three months. And then in March 1857, the money just stopped coming. Nothing came in April either. So Elizabeth, who was not a wealthy woman and was really struggling to feed her own children, she went to the Simmons's house to see if she could find the lady and, and find out what was happening. But when she got there, she says that she was informed by a housemaid that Mrs Simmons and the mother had left and no one knew where they had travelled to or when they would be returning. So Elizabeth says she insisted that she must speak to the mistress of the house and eventually someone told her that they would write to an address in Launceston for her and that she should just wait for a reply. So Elizabeth went home and another month went by with no word and no money and she was obviously getting desperate. The baby was apparently very small for her age, probably as a consequence of being born so early. And Elizabeth said that she was constantly worried for the little girl's health. And she decided that she just she just couldn't afford to keep the child. And at this point, it had been more than three months since she had received any money. So she wrapped the child up in a shawl and put it in a basket and walked with her from Penryn as far as Mitchell Hill in Truro, where she left her on a doorstep. And Elizabeth says that she quickly heard through word of mouth that the baby was safe and had been taken to the workhouse. But then, disaster struck. About a week after she had left Sarah in Truro, a parcel and a letter arrived from Mrs Simmons, the clergyman's wife. The package contained dresses for the little girl and a £10 note. While the letter also explained that the whole household had been unwell, hence the delay in the payment and that, even worse, they were coming next month, which was the June, to see the child. Now Elizabeth confessed that, understandably, she panicked and when they arrived she told them that the child had died of convulsions and that she had had her buried in the Wesleyan burial ground and for some reason it seems that no one asked any more questions and they just left and fast forward to 1877 and on her deathbed Elizabeth admits to the woman that's caring for her what she's done and that she has never forgiven herself but that over the years she has always kept an eye on Sarah and that she has watched her grow in the workhouse and knew that she was doing okay for herself and that she had left St Clement's and was now living with a family in Probus. And in another bizarre coincidence which is why I really think this is like the plot of a Dickensian novel the lady who is caring for Elizabeth while she is dying well she 
just happens to know the clergyman's family and is able to relate it to them and decides that something must be done. So she writes an anonymous letter to Sarah's mother, not giving any details, but just telling her that her daughter is still alive and living in Cornwall. And that is why the mother, using the pseudonym Aurora, has placed this advert in the papers, which first appeared in the West Britain on the 8th of March, 1877. Which brings us back full circle to where we started, to poor Sarah, so confused as to what's happening, and her poor mother realising that after 19 years of believing that her daughter has died, that she is in fact still alive. So, Aurora. We never really learn her real name, but we do know that her banker husband has passed away and that the couple never had any other children, which kind of makes Sarah Aurora's only living relative. And Aurora hires a solicitor in Truro to work on uh, her behalf and he apparently manages to establish the facts of the case and it seems that everything that Elizabeth Trabb had said before her death was true. And the local newspapers pick up, understandably, on this incredible story and many column inches are taken up with telling and retelling the tale and speculating on who the mother was and what's going to now happen to Sarah. In another twist, it seems that Sarah's mother who everyone seems to be assuming is a wealthy woman, is embroiled in some kind of legal dispute over money that has been embezzled from her over the years by, you'll never guess it, Mrs Simmons, the clergyman's wife. Now, details of this are a bit hazy, but there is some kind of implication that it's blackmail. But what over what that is, I I cannot say but I just think it's incredibly bizarre. Anyway, the Cornish Times wrote on the 14th of April 1877, quote, there is no doubt from the investigations that have been made and the facts that have been obtained that the unfortunate child found on Mitchell Hill in Truro is the child of this ill-used lady and as soon as a few little matters are cleared and the child is restored to her mother there will be a lawsuit entered into for the recovery of a large amount of property which by rights belongs to the child. Then on the 28th of April the Cornish Echo reported that Aurora the mother had arrived in Cornwall to meet her daughter now, Mr. and Mrs. Williams, um, that's the couple that were on the farm where Sarah was living. They met the mother first and then introduced her to Sarah. And apparently it was a very emotional reunion. Sarah was completely shocked and overcome by the whole situation and actually fainted on meeting her mother. The newspaper then reported that Sarah and her mother left Probus and caught a train from Grand Pound Road to continue their journey back to London. The reporter ends by saying that he hopes to provide more details on this story in the coming weeks. But unfortunately for us, we don't really hear much more. It isn't clear how their lives together pan 
out. And the last communication that we have about this is a really rather strange letter that appears in the Royal Cornwall Gazette in June 1877, so a few months after the reunion. So from this letter, it seems that when Truro Board of Guardians, and that's the officials that would have been responsible for the workhouse, when they found out that Sarah's mother was still alive, they wrote to her and tried to claim back the money that they had spent on raising Sarah. This, they estimated, was £93.10 and shillings which would be about £6,000 in today's money. And the letter that was printed in the newspaper is the reply that they say they received from Sarah's mother through her solicitor, a Mr Tilly. And the picture that it paints is not exactly the fairy tale that we have been led to believe. Sarah's mother claims in this letter that the death of her husband has left her surviving entirely on her own means and that she's been working as an art teacher, a professor of drawing, as she calls it. But she is also having to rely on the kindness of her friends for support too. And it seems that she and Sarah are struggling to get to know each other, that Sarah is you know, a simple country girl from Cornwall and that she's having trouble fitting into her new London life. And her mother writes, quote, she, that's Sarah, is so fearfully ignorant and coarse in her ways that at present I am unable to seek a tutor for her, but I am endeavouring to give her instructions myself, end quote. She also writes that she's unable to send any money um, as the whole affair has meant that she hasn't been able to keep up with her lessons with her art pupils and so has no money to spare. We do learn a little bit more about the legal dispute though. Somehow Sarah's mother has been diddled out of a property in East Cornwall, a house with 25 acres, which she says rightfully belongs to Sarah. Now, All I can think with that is is some kind of inheritance problem. Perhaps it belonged to her husband, the banker, and that he was not able to pass it down to his wife, but maybe it had to go to a surviving heir, and therefore it's gone to perhaps another member of the family. But now that Sarah's been found, it's rightfully hers. But of course, I I don't know that for sure, but that's just what occurs, what, what could have happened. Anyway, and that's it. She kind of ends the letter with talking about how grateful she is to Sarah's friend, Mrs Fleming, for bringing them together. But one last thing. After I had read this letter through a few times, it occurred to me that Sarah's mother refers to her solicitor, this Mr Tilly, as her mother-in-law's husband's brother meaning that her mother-in-law's name must be Tilly and therefore surely that makes her name, Sarah's mother's name, Tilly too. Does that make sense? So does that mean that Sarah Jane Mitchell's real name is now Sarah Jane Tilly? If it is, it didn't really help me very much because I tried tracing Sarah Jane Tilly 
in the census records, in the parish records, birth, marriages and deaths, in the newspapers, and I, I couldn't find anything. I drew a complete blank. So unfortunately, yeah, I, I can't tell you that for sure. But come on, what a story. I think it's incredible. It's just the strangest thing, isn't it? The whole thing is, is just like the plot from a novel. <laughs> and I, I, I can't help feeling at the end, though, incredibly sorry for Sarah Jane. It's just the way her mother writes that she's fearfully ignorant and coarse. And obviously her mother is probably what would have been referred to as a sort of a high-born lady, you know, very educated with all the, that uh, those privileges. And here's her daughter, her own flesh and blood, who has been brought up in a workhouse and, and then, you know, apprenticed to a farm um, and has led an entirely different life. And I wouldn't be surprised if, as time went on, you know, a, a larger rift occurred between these two women but oh my goodness an incredible story and I hope I really hope that you've enjoyed it with me um, as much as I enjoyed researching it for you and if you have enjoyed it then why not have a listen to some of the other episodes of this podcast or maybe pop over to my blog where I post new articles every couple of weeks. Uh, this week's article is all about the connections between Cornwall and the crew of the Mary Rose. So yeah, all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for all your support especially those that have signed up for my patreon and i would love to hear from any of you any of your thoughts on this story or any of the other stories that you listen to and until next time take really good care of yourselves and i promise i'll be back soon bye bye mm-hmm.